Minimalists. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and today we're going to talk about stoicism. We're going to talk about what it means to live a good life, and we're going to compare some different philosophies for living. And we're going to do all that with today's guest. I'm, I'm talking to William B. Irvine today. Bill, you're the author of a couple, well, quite a few books. Uh, first off, thank you for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, um, you're, you're uh, in my hometown right now, Dayton, Ohio. What, uh, what brought you out to Dayton? A job. <laughs> right I State. was a graduate student in philosophy, and uh, this would have been in the late 70s and early 80s, and any work you could get counted as a, a gift from the gods. So uh, I was in Cincinnati for a year, and a, uh, a, a faculty member had gone on leave, so they needed someone to fill that post. When he came back, I was no longer needed, uh, and just up the road, I found a job here, and it's I've been here for, what, 37 years, something crazy like that. Wow. I, I spent the first uh, 31 years of my life. I was born right across the street from you over at Wright Pat. And, um, you know, it, it's fascinating that I've, I've really been into to stoicism for maybe the last decade or so after reading many of the greats. But I've got to tell you, you, you I know you've written quite a few books, but uh, the book I want to talk most about today, and I'll hold this up for the camera for folks watching this on YouTube, is A Guide to the Good Life. And um, the, the, the subtitle here is The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. Now, the, the reason I, I like this book in particular, Bill, is um, I find a lot of Stoic writing to be very informative, but I also find it to be somewhat, somewhat dry. Um, and your, your writing is not that. In fact, um, I find it to be very lucid and very uh, digestible. And also, it's a great reference. I, I've actually for folks who are watching this can see I've got two bookmarks here. I find that I keep going back to this book and you know, using the index that you have in the book to look up particular topics. In fact, I even uh, quoted from this book in, in our next book that's coming out called Love People Use Things. Now, you've got an, a new book as well uh, called The Stoic Challenge. And can you maybe give a, just a brief overview on the difference between these, these two books? Okay, the guide was written back in 2008. It was uh, sort of a sequel to a book on human desire that I published in 2004, 2006. Um, and in that desire, in that book on desire, I went into it thinking that I wanted to become a Zen Buddhist. And it's an example of an academic twofer. Uh, mm -hmm. I could get two for the price of one because I could not only get a publication, but I could find out more about Zen Buddhism. And to be complete in the writing of the book on desire, I had to look into alternative philosophies of life. Stoicism was one of them, and it very quickly became apparent 
that Stoicism had a, a, a lot lower entry cost than Zen Buddhism did. Now, I'm not putting down the Zen Buddhists. You know, they're good people, and, and, and they have a different way of approaching it. But it occurred to me that given my personality, given my temperament, that uh, Stoicism would be an easy fit. So I decided to start practicing it very quickly, realized that it worked, thought I need to share this with the rest of the world. At that time, there weren't a lot of books for general audiences on Stoicism. Now, they're coming out at about the rate of one a week, if you look on, right. on Amazon. So it's, a, it's become a crowded field. And I don't claim to be the pioneer. There were some books. Uh, most of the books were written for an academic audience. But I thought, uh, for the world, they need to know about this. And then uh, I subsequently, after that, wrote a book on insults, uh, the stoic approach to insults. And then, uh, as if I hadn't uh, had enough yet, I decided <laughs> to have a really simplified kind of uh, uh, technique-driven book. And, and that became the Stoic Challenge. And that's how to deal with life setbacks. And, and it's interesting how that's turned out because we're in the middle of a setback right now in the form of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Um, and so that's uh, uh, created some thinking about, uh, you know, in my mind, about uh, how stoicism can be useful in these times. Now, for the unfamiliar, people often hear the term stoicism, and we think of a, a, a stoic person, a small-s stoic, um, but there's a difference between a small-s stoic and a person who is a stoic. Um, so maybe maybe talk a little bit about what is stoicism and, and that, that sort of misconception of a stoic person. Yeah, the big misconception, and the one I had before uh, writing the book on desire is that these Stoics are people who just grimly take what life can throw at them. And then reading the actual Stoics, I found out how wrong that was, that they're people who enjoy um, delight uh, and they seek joy in life. Uh, and they came up with these strategies. They, they were the preeminent psychologists of their time. They came up with these strategies for uh, avoiding the onset of negative emotions and when those negative emotions appear, for uh, overcoming them quickly or preventing them from uh, leading you astray. And those are very easy to use techniques, very effective techniques. Um, so then the realization that they aren't these grim individuals, they're these people doing their best to live lives full of joy. And that was a turnaround epiphany for me. And so I decided I was going to become a practicing Stoic. Now, people listening to this, they'll, they'll often think, in fact, one question that we had submitted from Kier was, how is Stoicism related to minimalism? And, and what I would say is minimalism has a lot more to do with the, 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 at least minimalism as a lifestyle, has a lot more to do with the material possessions. In fact, it starts with the, the material possessions and uh, realizing what is essential. Uh, Stoicism, I, I would say, goes, goes beyond that. Well, obviously, taking into account 
uh, the material things that most likely aren't going to make us happy, but also realizing some things in our life can augment or enhance our experience of life. What did the Stoics have to say about material wealth and material possessions? Yeah, let me start out by um, by saying that when I was in high school, I discovered Henry David Thoreau mm. and Red Walden, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a pivotal moment just because I came to realize how pointless the pursuit of uh, you know achievements and wealth that most people engage in is. The Stoics have a really interesting spin on that. So you can find a whole range of people who had different connections with with materialism. You have Musonius Rufus, who lived a very simple, basic life. And he, he thought, you know, if you live alone on an island and raise your own food, you're in great shape. And at the other end, you find Seneca, who was up the first century AD equivalent of a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave these uh, apparently very lavish parties. And then the question is, how can that be? How can somebody who's living the life of a monk like Musonius Rufus have something, some common core in common with Seneca? And here's one way to think of that. For Seneca, you know what? If life presents you with something wonderful, savor it. And while you savor it, realize that there's a very good chance. In fact, it's for sure that someday it will no longer be available to you. If nothing else, your own death will prevent you from enjoying it anymore. Mm. So if it's there, savor it. Don't long for it. Uh, if it goes away, well, you, you took advantage of it while you while you had it. So it's a, an interesting uh, psychological approach. Well, but I've got a bunch more questions for you, but this is tends to be a, a listener-driven show, so I want to dive into some of our, our voicemail questions here. Our first one is from Stalin in Lima, Peru. My question was, um, if you think your message is applicable <clears throat> um, to all cultures... So, Bill, it sounds to me like what, what Stalin is is asking here. It, he he lives somewhere else. He's he's in uh, Lima, Peru, and uh, I often get this question about minimalism. But I think the answer is probably going to be similar with respect to, to stoicism as well. I know in your book you you talk about how there are some people who are predisposed for stoicism, but uh, what I and I would I would argue the same thing with with minimalism. People who are Uh, predisposed to maybe jettison the superfluous material possessions to make room for what is truly important in their life, if that's how we're defining minimalism here. But but what I would say is that just about anyone can benefit from it. It doesn't mean that they they necessarily will or that it's appropriate for them. But if we're talking about the deliberate use of the resources we have, I don't know who wouldn't benefit from that. And I, I would think the same would be true for stoicism. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, because if you look around the world, you find uh, there are societies where people are affluent. The United States would be an example of that, where uh, people, some people are happy, some people are thriving, some people are miserable. And you find places where people are impoverished in you know, financial terms, and yet some people are happy and some people are miserable. 
you look at the Stoics, and I mentioned Musonius Rufus before. So he was exiled to the island of Giaros in the Aegean Sea, and it was this desolate island, and uh, he got in trouble. The Stoics had a, a problem with that. They tended to get in trouble with the powers that be. And during his time on the island, he simply said, well, I'm now on an island. Before, I, I was not. Now I am. So what am I going to do? Hmm. I'm going to do the best with what I've got where I am and succeeded in having, apparently, um, a rewarding for him existence. People would come to visit him and say, well, aren't you miserable here? And he'd say, well, no. Why should I be? At the other extreme, you have Seneca. And I told you before, he was a billionaire. He would practice poverty. So one of the things he would do is go for periods of time depriving himself of the good things in life. Uh, just to keep, you know, in balance, just to know what it was like. And the interesting thing is, if you have a lot and it's taken away, it can be a very, very uh, depressing thing. If you're used to not having a lot, there's a chance when you can actually be more alive because you're more appreciative of the things that you do have. So we have these examples in history. We have these examples in geography. Um, what determines your happiness in life is your approach to life. Uh, your material conditions play a role, but not the key role. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's what I, what I often say. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with material possessions. In fact, you know, Ryan and I, when we started The Minimalist, we didn't set out to be, to be monks or ascetics. Uh, we certainly didn't uh, set out to be you know, people who, who suffer from Spartanism where you can't stop getting rid of things. It, it, we had reached this condition that a lot of Westerners had reached where we had too much stuff and it was getting in the way of what was important. And I, I find that with Stoicism, you start to question what is important in your life and maybe realize that, oh man, I've been focusing on the wrong things for so long that I don't even know what the right things are to focus on. Yeah, the right things cannot be the possession of physical things. It, it's And you can look around for evidence. Uh, I know uh, people who are relatively uh, poor. I know people who are quite wealthy. And uh, it's, it's hard to see, you know, you, there is no direct correlation there. Life is what you make of it. And your values. So why do people acquire wealth? Uh, one of the primary reasons is they seek social status. Mm. And if they have lots of stuff, they become the object of admiration. That cuts uh, two different ways, right? Because they can be the obvious, uh, the, the object of admiration, but they can also be the object of envy. You know, and, and people who who really hope something bad happens to them because they don't deserve what they've uh, what they've got. Um, so, what should you be aiming at if not physical things? Uh, you should be aiming for a good life. And the Stoics. This is one interesting case where the Stoics agreed with the Zen Buddhists. So, what's a good life? It's one where you have as few negative emotions as you can. Negative emotions include anger, include envy, include uh, grief, 
Uh, so you try that, that becomes your goal. And it can be that physical objects get in the way of your attaining that goal. You know, if you go around your days wishing you only had more money so you could have a better car, you're going to be miserable. If, on the other hand, when you get into your older car, whatever, and are driving and then realize how much easier it is to go places than if you had to walk, you know, in, in particular, if it's a snowy or rainy day, mm-hmm. it, it, it's your mindset that determines the effect that your possessions have on you. Uh, realize, too, that even if you're a, a relatively poor American, you're living in the dream world of your great-great-grandparents. Mm. You know, if you said to them, okay, in my pocket here, I have uh, this device, this small device that will allow me not only to have a telephone conversation with someone in Hong Kong, but I can look at their picture <laughs> while I'm doing it. You know, I, I, and again, I... Unfathomable. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, and, and I have in my pocket, in my cell phone, more computing power than existed on the campus of the University of Michigan when I set foot there in 1970. That is just a miracle. And yet, you know, you you have your cell phone. Uh, At first, it's amazing. And then you take it for granted. And then it's a serious kind of addiction after that. Uh, So it's a a kind of a, a descent. Uh, and you, you, you get your cell phone and it's the thing of your dreams. And then they come out with a new model and then you mm-hmm. start saying, gee, I, I don't know, you know, what will people think? Uh, so a lot of people go through life chasing a, a mirage and, uh, a wise person will realize the folly of that. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's fascinating that often the object of our satisfaction in the moment becomes the object of our discontent. The, the cell phone is a great example of that because as soon as you get it, uh, you get that dopamine rush and and many other material possessions are, are similar to this, but of course they break or they get old or they're no longer useful to us and we tend to cling to them thinking that it will bring the, the value that they once brought to us, but of course they rarely do. Uh, Stalin, I'm going to send you a copy of A Guide to the Good Life. I think you really enjoy this book. Um, just so many great thoughts here. Also, um, it, uh, expanding on what Bill talked about with respect to um, wealth and also um, status, um, quite a bit in, in the book about that. Our next question is from Shanna in Tucson, Arizona. I'm 26 and I'm my last year of grad school in Arizona. Up until this point, I've been financially dependent on my parents who live in Florida. They bought all my stuff. And I'm not sure how to tell them, especially my mom, about my minimalism journey. My mom's favorite hobby is shopping, and she'll often mail me unsolicited clothing or things or text me photos of shoes when she's out shopping or send me emails about sales. This can be extremely frustrating, especially after I've told her I don't want or need anything else. How do I I explain minimalism to her? I'm scared of being perceived as unappreciative for everything they've done for me, and I'm scared she'll react negatively, as that's often her first reaction. All right, Bill. So so for uh, Shanna here, it sounds to me like this is a 
uh, a problem with respect to either values or beliefs, which I, I like to delineate the, both of those things. And you, you touched upon the word values earlier, and it sounds to me like maybe her mother and she value uh, different things at, at this point. And uh, there's a certain terror, and I even hear it in her voice. Uh, you know, I'm 26. I'm financially dependent on my parents until very recently. And um, I'm afraid to tell them no. I'm also afraid to tell them, these people that I love, about some changes I'm making in my own life. And I assume when, when someone is, is going down this stoicism rabbit hole, it's intimidating, especially when you, when you have to reveal this, this, uh, this sort of lifestyle change to other people. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough, uh, tough situation to be in. Here's a thing I've discovered, and that is if you have different values than other people, some people will accept it and say, you know, it's a, it's a diverse world and we have all sorts of different opinions. But other people will take it personally. They will mm. assume that because you don't share their values, that you disapprove of their values, that you're disapproving of them. And that's where things can get uh, tricky. So, um, you know, I'm a parent myself, so uh, I kind of know the, the tensions that are there. And we do our best to let our kids discover their own values. And um, so I, I don't know if I have any really great, easy to advice, but think of it in terms of just a long-term project. Uh, your mother is attempting to show that she loves you. She's attempting to uh, give you things that make her happy, thinking that they'll make uh, you happy as well. So the intentions are great. And for that alone, you know, you should, you should love her, you should honor her. And then the question is just kind of redirecting, kind of training. And it's a long-term project. Yeah. But, you know, when she offers you something, you know, you'd say, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for the thought. But, you know, I really can't use it because I'm, I'm trying to simplify. I'm trying a different approach. And I wish you well because, you know, some parents can pick up the clues. Other parents just can't imagine uh, that their kids could turn out different than they do. <laughs> you know, what's fascinating to me in a conversation like this, I found one thing that works really well instead of telling your parents no, uh, finding out what you should say yes to. Instead of saying, no, no, I, I don't want that or no, don't give me that gift. This is especially a contentious time with uh, with uh, Christmas gifts or birthdays or, or holidays where there's sort of the obligatory gift giving going on. And I, I find that instead of saying, no, don't get me that, Find something you can say yes to. And that quite often is not a material possession, but there can still be a, a gift within their presence, whether it's sharing an experience with them or, or figuring out what you can do together. Um, or maybe there is an actual useful material possession that you could, uh, that would add value to your life. And if so, again, nothing wrong with owning material possessions. It's having the right ones in your life that don't get in the way of, of living a, a meaningful life. And, and so, uh, Shanna, what, what I'm going to say to you is that I totally understand that it is a difficult conversation to have with your parents, especially when we're talking about conversations around 
values and, and beliefs. And and just to put a, a, a pin on, on those two things, yeah, it sounds to me like you and your mom probably do actually have similar values. There's a good chance you do. She cares about you. You just have different beliefs around ha- how she should be caring about you, right? And in her mind, uh, gift giving is a love language. And we've been told that we've been sort of sold this meme in our society of gift giving being a love language. And so she's trying to express that love in, in the way that she knows how to express it. However, you can, as, as Bill said, sort of retrain her to understand that there are other ways that she can be loving towards you. So you, you can help her understand what your beliefs are and then help her honor those at the same time appreciating the fact that you two have different beliefs and that's totally okay. And if you can accept it, respect her different beliefs, uh, that's one step closer toward her accepting and respecting your beliefs. Uh, Shannon, I'd love to send you, I want to send you a copy of our book, Essential. It's an essay collection in there. Uh, there, There's 12 different areas of, of intentional living. And there are a few that I think you'll find particularly useful. One, is, there's a chapter on gift giving, and there's also a, a chapter in there about minimalism and, and our stuff and, and dealing with our stuff. So if you like our podcast, you'll really like the audiobook version of Essential, that essay collection, or uh, if you want the book book or the ebook, happy to send those to you as well. Oh, and uh, you're in Tucson, Arizona. If you want to make a quick road trip over, we're going on tour in, uh, we just postponed our West Coast tour. Uh, San Diego would be the closest stop for you. But uh, Sean, if you could reach out to Shanna and give her uh, a couple tickets to the West Coast tour, uh, we have an event in San Diego. Also, um, seven other cities along the west coast of the United States and Canada. Uh, for folks who are interested, you can just find those details on our website, theminimalists.com slash tour. I do want to move on to our lightning round. This is where we answer your text message. You can text your questions and comments to 937-202-4654. Those texts go straight to my phone and straight to Ryan's phone. Um, I know that sounds... Uh, a little bit crazy, but we answer as many of the questions as we can. You know, people text us all the time, uh, and we can't answer every question, but we do reply to a bunch of them. Plus, we answer some here on the podcast. Now, Bill, during the lightning round, this is where we typically try to answer questions with just a, a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We put the okay. text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so people can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if they'd like. But don't worry, Bill. We just maunder on a little bit, and uh, we tweeze out something that is pithy uh, once we once we get something uh, worth uh, worth tweeting. Uh, I'm Hassan, up for the challenge. <laughs> well, Hassan has a question for us. He says, "How do you practice stoicism without losing one of the foundational things that make us human?" And that foundational thing, he says, is emotion. And I think we kind of touched on this a little bit, Bill. People often conflate being a stoic person with being a person who is a stoic. And and, uh, those two things are different. But how do we become stoics without losing human emotion? Uh, I would regard myself as a, a, a quite an emotional human being, a warmly emotional human being. Um, so uh, what I've done, though, is radically diminish the number of negative emotions I experience. I rarely, if ever, experience envy. anger. I've gotten, I'm not perfect yet, but I've gotten under much greater control. Stoicism is not about abolishing emotion. It's about trying to minimize the number of negative emotions and embracing the positive emotions. 
Wow, that is definitely tweetable. I love it. I I, I would say that uh, my pithy answer is just too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Uh, and and I, I find this with, um, there's a good example. Uh, Paul Bloom at Yale wrote a book called, uh, I think it's called The Case Against Empathy. Have you, have you uh, heard about this? No, I'm not familiar with that. Okay. Well, it's, it's fascinating because uh, we often use this term empathy as a, as a good thing, but he makes the argument that it's actually a, a bad thing and that what we actually mean is compassion. We don't, we don't want to have too much empathy. You, know, you think about your, uh, if you're going to have a surgery on your knee, you don't literally want your doctor to feel your knee pain. Um, that's probably going to prevent him from be, doing the, the best job possible. And, um, but of course, you, you want him to have a certain amount of, of compassion for you in that situation. You don't want him to be emotionless. And I, I love the idea of minimizing. You know, obviously, and we can't eliminate all negative emotions, but we can uh, choose to let them go. And uh, don't you think quite often, Bill, we, we tend to hold on to them. What, why, do we, why do we grasp so tightly to many of these negative emotions? There seems to almost be a, a comfort in feeling the, feeling the negativity. Yeah, well, it's a social thing, and you're expected uh, to do it. And the Stoics said that when a disaster happens, you're going to experience grief. That's just part of uh, human nature. But to extend that grief is a, a waste of your time, energy, and life that you need to be thinking the positive sides. You need to be thinking that tomorrow is a new day, and you move on. All right, before we get into our added value segment and our listener tips today, it looks like we got a bunch more surprise questions this week. What are the potential pitfalls and drawbacks of Stoicism? What are the most coherent criticisms of Stoicism? What's the ultimate goal of Stoicism? And we're also going to talk about how the Stoics would have approached social media today. We're going to talk about the COVID-19 crisis and how the Stoics would have approached that. We're going to talk about embracing Stoicism with a family and we're going to talk about the one thing that Stoics do every single day. Uh, plus, I got a bunch more questions for William B. Irvine. And if you want to hear all that, listen to this week's Maximal episode on the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're going to talk about so much this week. Uh, you're currently listening to our weekly Minimal episode, but each week, Ryan and I and our guests, we record an entirely different, much longer Maximal episode on the Minimalist Private podcast. It's just two bucks and it's the most honest way for this podcast to earn an income because we don't believe in advertisements because advertisements suck. So we make money only if you find value in and support what we create. By the way, when you subscribe to the Minimalist Private Podcast, you'll receive a personal link so that our maximal episodes play in your favorite podcast app. Find all the details at theminimalists.com slash support. All right, here are some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. G'day guys, this is Tristan from Erlangen, Germany. I wanted to share an efficient way to follow the news without having to compulsively check all the time or relying on some social media algorithm. So what I do is I use RSS feeds for all the content I'm interested in. Most websites that have some sort of news feed allow you to copy an RSS link into an RSS reader app. When you subscribe to an RSS feed, all new articles from the website will show up in your RSS reader. When you open an article in the reader, it gets marked as read. You can filter out read articles, so once you've read something, it will no longer take up any space. Some websites have a dedicated button from which you can copy the RSS link into a reader. However, with a lot of websites that don't explicitly advertise their RSS feed, you can just copy the URL from your address bar. 
This way you can, for example, subscribe to YouTube channels without even having a Google account. It also works with podcasts, as podcast links typically rely on the RSS standard. So you can really have all your content in one place. The reader that I use is called Feedbin. It's an online reader which syncs to all my devices. The cool thing about Feedbin is you can filter incoming articles by keywords and automatically perform actions on them. For example, I've subscribed to The Economist's Asia feed, but I'm really just interested in news concerning Australia, not so much the rest of the region. So I have Feedbin mark any articles in the Asia feed as read that don't contain the word Australia. These automations can actually be much more complex, allowing you to save a heap of time. Feedbin is five US dollars a month or 50 US dollars a year. There is a similar alternative called InnoReader, which also has a free version. If you're new to the whole thing, I would recommend you try out the free version or one of many other free readers and see whether you actually need any automation tools or other extra features. You can then still switch as it's very easy to export all your feeds in a single file and import them to another reader, much like transferring bookmarks when switching browsers. Hi, my name's Karen. I'm calling from Hertfordshire in the UK. I'm calling with some tips today for anyone who's been through bereavement recently. It's a tough thing to go through and you sort of still have to deal with all the objects that are left behind and that's been quite a difficult process for me. Number one tip is remembering that the love is not in the object. The love you have for that person is not in the object. And that's a, a thing that I've heard before on the podcast, but it's been my little motto for dealing with this. My, my father passed away in January, and I've had a lot of objects and things to go through of his. So I've just been saying that over and over to myself, and it's been very, very helpful. My love for him is in the things I did for him when he was alive, the times I told him I loved him, and in my memories that I carry with me for the rest of my life. Number two, and this wouldn't be for everyone, is that I've chosen to make a memory bear out of some of his old clothing. You can just find online, if you Google memory bear, there's lots of different companies. I've gone with one in the UK called Lily's Love that I found on Facebook. But not just for bereaved people's clothing, also they can make wedding dresses, bears out of wedding dresses, bears out of old baby's clothing. So if your children have grown up, it's another good thing that you could think about doing with the clothes. The third thing is just remembering that the greatest object my parents could bequeath me is me. My flesh, my blood, they chose to raise me. And that's an amazing gift, the gift of life. And it's really important that I hang on to that. I was a surprise baby, so they didn't have to have me, but they carried on. And I know parents aren't always brilliant. They don't always make the best choices, but they chose to try. They chose to try and raise me well. And I know that I only honour that gift if I spend the time now looking after myself as I live my life, rather than fretting over some old crockery or CDs. So I hope those tips help someone. I'm sending out all my love to anyone who's going through the same experience at the moment. All right, y'all. Thanks again to William B. Irvine for joining us today. Check out his books. We'll put a link to all of them in the show notes. Uh, the best one to start with, I believe, is A Guide to the Good Life, which I'm holding up here for YouTube. He also has The Stoic Challenge, several other books. We'll put a link to his website in the show notes. And real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. As you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm in my living room right now. Uh, but I've been recording some quarantine conversations with a Q, QQ, uh, over on Patreon, I've been picking up the phone each day and just calling a different friend or family member or loved one or a friend of the podcast as well. Uh, Dan Savage, Dave Ramsey, um, Annika Harris, um, a former partner of mine, Colleen McCullough. Uh, she's an artist. Uh, if, you, if you read Everything That Remains, you, you read about her. Uh, I've just been talking to a bunch of different people in my life about how they're handling and 
some of them are even thriving during these uh, these times, during this crisis. And uh, I want to talk to them about their anxieties, about their fears, about their stresses, and also about ways that they're they're dealing with everything that's going on right now. And I've been really surprised by how many people are doing really well in a time like this. And I wanted to figure out how that was was possible. And so we've been having these conversations. They're about 12 minutes each. Some of them are maybe a little bit longer than that. But uh, each day I'm doing one of these conversations over on Patreon. So if you're interested in that, uh, they're free, by the way, to anyone who is a Patreon supporter of ours. Thank you. If you are a Patreon supporter, it keeps this podcast 100% advertisement free. You can find all the details over at patreon.com slash The Minimalists. Also, you can uh, follow The Minimalists on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Minimalists. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. You can comment on this episode at youtube.com slash The Minimalists. And if you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. You'll also receive our simple Sunday emails each week. If you're not on that email list, you've missed some really good simple Sunday emails over the last few weeks. I did uh, one recently called Minimalism Renewed. It's about a uh, a post-coronavirus, really post-pandemic world and what to expect out of our new normal. And so I wrote, wrote an essay about that and, and tried to delineate essential from non-essential and junk and, and talking about looking ahead instead of looking backward. And I think you'll find some value in that. So you can sign up for our simple Sunday emails. They're totally free. Just go to theminimalists.com put your email address at the top. We'll never send you spam or junk. We just want to keep you informed and uh, we want to add value to your life. And we think we can add value to your inbox with some simple writings and also our podcast show notes there. For our added value this week, you know, I was thinking about stoicism and uh, Bex and I on Easter, we drove out to Palm Springs, which was a fascinating trip because it was deserted, obviously. And we weren't trying to be around people. We were just looking for some sun. It was actually raining in LA. And so we drove out east to Palm Springs and it was beautiful and sunny and the you know, hiking areas, etc. But also in town, it was clearly, it was desolate. Um, but we were listening to uh, the sort of playlist I have going. And there's a, a song from the band called The Album Leaf. And the song is called Window from their album In a Safe Place. When I think of stoicism, for whatever reason, this song comes to mind first. So I hope you enjoy Window by The Album Leaf. And if you leave here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.